How's everybody doing? Good. All right. I know I'm not Aaron. Um, some of you may know who I am. Yes, contrary to popular opinion. Uh, my name's Cameron Breedlove. I am um, graduated from Auburn in May of 2020, and I work uh, here in Auburn. I've uh, been at Lakeview since 2019, so uh, I'm super excited to be with you all today. So if you have your Bibles, if you all open up to Ephesians 2, we'll be in Ephesians 2. Aaron provided a very uh, helpful, I guess you would call it acronym, General Electric Power Company. Um, I grew up with Go Eat Popcorn. I, I don't know how Colossians fits into there. I guess it's like the pop and the corn, but Go Eat Popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Ephesians is between Galatians and Philippians. So this, this text, verses 11 through 22, it's, it's really very similar to what Aaron preached on last week, verses 1 through 10. So we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning talking about the, the end of kind of like verses 5 through verses 10, and that'll kind of give us a good runway to get into our passage of 11 through 22. So I'm going to start with just reading 11 through 22, and then we'll come back to verses um, like 5 through 10. All right, so Ephesians 2, starting with verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that you've given us together where we can gather as your people who have been purchased by your blood. Oh, what, is, what a, a price it, it cost you for our redemption, for you killing the hostility and so offering us peace. And now we can have peace in Christ, how you are our peace, God. Um, so I pray this morning that we would glean something from these words that, that Paul has given us, that God, you have given us. Um, I pray that you would give me the help I need. I pray that your spirit would um, overcome me, would overcome these students, helping them and, and, and teaching their hearts and encouraging us as, as we go out um, and as, as we just begin this day with you, God, worshiping you all the day long as it gets us ready for another week. 
um, and service in your kingdom. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you know, when we talk about a passage like this, when we talk about any passage, we really want to try to get some of the main ideas out of, out of this text. Um, in order to do that, we need a little bit of context. And so that, that first word in there, therefore, probably heard, you know, you need to figure out what is the therefore, therefore. And so to understand that, um, we really kind of kind of look at some of those, those passages or that passage before that Aaron talked about. So I'm going to start in verse 5 um, in, in Ephesians 2. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, um, that is God, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That's important not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore. So Paul is, is taking this passage beforehand and, and saying, all right, so based off of all these things that God has done on your behalf, by grace you have been saved through faith. And the, and the big thing is the gift, the gift of God. This was nothing of your own doing. This is something that God did for you. He's doing through you. And so, and this is where he gets right at the heart. And, and you may be wondering, you know, we look at verses 11 through 12, and, and, it's, and it's very similar to what he's kind of laying out in verses 1 through 4, being dead in our trespasses and sins, you're separated from Christ, you're alienated from the commonwealth. And it's very interesting how, you know, he doesn't just go into verse 11, therefore remember that you were at that time separated. Verse 11, there, there's something in there that Paul wanted us to kind of get at. So verse 11 Therefore, remember, he doesn't just go right into separated from Christ. And why did he, why did he not do that? Why, why did he include verse 11 in there? And so verse 11 is, is really getting at this difference between Gentile and Jew. Um, and, and so if you look at it, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So Paul is preaching, he's writing to a largely Gentile audience, and so I think he wants to address um, the Gentiles. And so, for most of us in the room, we are considered Gentiles, unless you are an ethnic Jew, um, then you are a Gentile. Gentiles were the outside nations, nations that God had not chosen to be a part of the commonwealth of Israel, they were separated from Christ, they did not have the covenants of promise. And so most of us in the room are going to be considered a Gentile. So Paul is talking to this largely Gentile church. He's talking to us. And he, and he talks about, you know, he calls, you know, in quotations, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. What is he talking about right here? So the circumcision, you know, a lot of times in the Gospels, there was a lot of times where um, the Pharisees would, would go around and they would accuse Peter um, you know, and he would run when it said the circumcision party was coming for him. And so they would run and they would hide because they knew the Jewish people um, were coming to find him. And, and, and why, was this, why was this such a big deal? And you don't have to turn here, but I want to read from, from Acts 15.1. This big deal between circumcision and uncircumcision, circumcision being the covenant sign of the Jewish people, uncircumcision being anyone else who didn't have the covenant signs or Gentiles. So in Acts 15.1, it 
It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that's, that's a pretty big generalization. That's a pretty big astounding statement that they would say that you have to be circumcised to be saved. And so the big thing that Paul is trying to get across here is, no, that's not the case. Circumcision and, and, and spiritual salvation is not by flesh. It's not made in the flesh, but it is something that God does within our hearts. And so we're going to get into that in verses 13 through 18. And I, and I love, whenever we look at this passage, just something I want to talk about a lot is just these common ideas and these common words that Paul uses. And I think one of those first ones that he's really trying to get at is that's the idea of flesh. So he says, therefore, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, you are called the uncircumcision, but it's what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So it's very important to remember those two things right there, flesh in the hands. We're going to look at that a little bit later when we talk about Jesus by his flesh, taking on flesh and, and killing the hostility. So that's going to be a big thing that we talk about. So let's move on to, to verse 12. And there's kind of these five axioms that, that Paul is talking about um, right here. And so um, this first thing I want to talk about is just this idea of remembrance and remembering where you were. And why would, why would Paul want us to remember? It seems a little grim sometimes. It seems a little maybe not necessary. Um, and you think about um, in Philippians where um, he talks about, you know, laying off, um, you know, going towards the upward call of Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm blanking on where that's at, but, you know, thinking about laying off of, of what was and then pushing forward to what lies ahead. So why would he call on us to remember here? Uh, I think it's, you know, it's remembering the bad news. It's remembering the old state, remembering you Gentiles, where you were saved from where the gift of God was imputed to you as a Gentile, how you were saved through Christ. And that, looking at verse 9, it eliminates the boasting. Verse 9 right now, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So if you really grasp that you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that you were strangers to the covenant of promise, that you had no hope, and that you were without God in the world, that eliminates any boasting that we can have because we can't boast because it was given as a gift. And so that's what Paul is trying to kill in these first two verses is eliminating the boasting. And he already talked about it in verse nine, but he's just kind of building on that and saying, because this is a gift, you have no reason to boast. And so let's talk about these five things that, that he's looking at. And, and so the first one he says is, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. The Gentiles have no Christ, and having no Christ means a lot of things follow after that. So what's the second thing he talks about? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated, you were an alien. We think about aliens, we think about somebody from another planet. We think about extraterrestrial beings. And so that's what Gentiles were. They were um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. No Abrahamic covenant, no Davidic covenant. You are not part of these covenants as, as we know it. Now, obviously, we know looking at Genesis, 
God tells Abraham that all the nations will be blessed by you. And so that all nations includes all of us. But Gentiles, it, there is, they weren't born into the system that God created by creating his covenant people, by giving them the sign of circumcision, which we now know the new covenant sign is the sign of baptism. And so we're going to get into this idea of you know, new signs and um, knowing now that we have been saved by God and that it is not the flesh, but it is the spiritual circumcision that happens in our heart that God gives us um, a new um, identity. Having no hope. I want to talk about that one. Having no hope. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt like, man, I, you know, you wake up one morning and or something bad happens and you don't have any hope? That hopelessness feeling. I know sometimes I've, I've felt like that, but I can guarantee you it wasn't to the extent that these Gentiles felt. Having no hope and without God. Having no hope and without God. That's, that's bad. That's some really bad news to hear. It's a really bad state to be in, to have no hope and without God in the world, which the Israelites did have, and these Gentiles did not have um, the fortune of having that. So, you know, looking forward at, at some of these other things, you know, just thinking about remembering where you were, remembering what you've been saved from, remembering that you had no hope, you're without God in the world. Some really bad news, and I, and I want us to think about that and just think about just how sad it was to not be a part of the covenant of Israel, to not be a part of the promises of Christ, and to have that. And, and Paul says that was at one time. But let's keep moving, because there's some good news coming. So in verse 13, he says, But now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Man, that's good news. And that's good news that goes off the tales of verse 11 and 12, where there was some really bad news. But now, you heard all the bad news, but now, you who once were far off, far off from the covenants, far off from the promises, far off from God, far off from hope, you once who were far off have been brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. What brought you near? It was the blood of Jesus. It was him going to the cross, shedding his blood for me, for you, and that's how he brought us near. And so I want to keep reading to the end of verse 18 just to kind of pick up this big section right here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So in this second portion of the passage, one of the big things I want to get across is this idea of hostility and peace, or unity and peace. And so one of my favorite things and it, when I talk to people, when I have conversations with people, is I really want to figure out the definitions of words. Definitions of words are, are very important to me when I'm having a conversation with someone and they make a statement 
but they say something that, you know, they say a term that might have a lot of different definitions. And so a lot of times, like, I'll pull out a dictionary and, and see what the dictionary has to say, and we'll go from there or something like that. And, and we'll try to not have different definitions when we're having an argument or having, like, a conversation. It's like, what do you mean by that? Or I'll ask, you know, well, how do we define that? It really depends on how we do that. And the same goes with the Bible, but the unique thing about the Bible is as Christians holding to a biblical worldview, holding this as the standard for everything that is good and right and just, and also on the other side, everything that is wicked and unjust and unrighteous, we look through the lens of the Bible to define our terms. And so the world doesn't get to define what love is. The world doesn't get to define what justice is. The world doesn't get to define what peace is. God defines love. God defines justice. God defines righteousness. And God defines peace. So I really want to try to get at what is he talking about? What is it saying when, when Paul says, for he himself is our peace? And a lot of us have ideas of what you might think peace means and, and, and what it might mean to you, what it might mean for the entire world, what it might mean to God. But let's try to understand that we don't have any meaning of it. And so we're going to keep reading. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, so hostility would seem like the opposite of peace. So when we think about hostility, there's this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Um, I think there's a, a really helpful statement to kind of understand this hostility of Jew and Gentile and kind of getting at where God is trying to bring peace into this situation. So first we're going to look at the peace that he brings into the situation between Jew and Gentile, between common men, so this kind of horizontal peace, but then we're also going to look at this vertical peace that God brings between us and himself. But William Barclay um, really kind of sums up how the Jews felt um, contempt against the Gentiles. So this is this, the Gentiles. This is what he had to say um, about the Jews and the Gentiles and their relationship. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. There was no wedding, it was a funeral. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So there's a lot of hatred, a lot of bad animosity between Jew and Gentile. So that's the hostility that God came to abolish, that Christ came to abolish, and that Paul is writing about. So when we think about that, the opposite of that is peace. Christ himself being our peace. And so God gets to define peace. God gets to define, ultimately, this, this ultimate peace is right standing with God and man. The peace that we could never attain, that was a gift from God, and the wrath of God that had to be poured out on Jesus so that he could obtain that peace for us. 
So peace, Christ is our peace. So the dividing wall um, could also be talked about how in, the, in Jerusalem, there was the Jewish temple and there was this wall that surrounded um, the Jewish temple. And so Gentiles were not allowed in there. So I, Paul could be talking about this dividing wall. He could also be, just be talking about this metaphorical wall that's between Jew and Gentile. Um, in Acts 20, 10, 28, Peter is talking and he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so there's this idea of uncleanliness that was a big part of the Old Testament system and the Jewish system and that Jewish people were not to associate with Gentile people or people of another nation because it was unclean for them to do so. But God is trying to teach them that that is not so. So keep moving forward, and, and, and Paul is talking about, you know, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So what is he talking about here? Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So um, I think it's really helpful to, you don't have to turn here, but Romans 7 is very helpful here. Romans 7 verses 4 and 6, Paul is talking about abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so what I think Paul is trying to get across here is not that he's saying that Jesus, as he says earlier, um, in the Gospels, that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And so when he's saying by abolishing the law of, of commandments expressed in ordinances, he is merely trying to get a point across the point that while the law still stands, the effect of the law and, and the, the law's grip on us, the law as a stumbling block for both Jew and Gentile, is now not in effect. It is now obsolete. And so the law, although it still stands, although as Christians the law is still helpful for us, and, and the law was very helpful for Jewish people to see the right and the wrongness of their hearts and the sin in their hearts, the law now, we have a new law. And the new law is our faith in Christ. And just kind of sum that up. And so when Christ died, people of faith died to the law. The law was a stumbling block for both Jew and Gentile. The Jews could never keep it, and the Gentiles, they never had it. The law still stands, but its effect and grips on people are rendered ineffective. Christ is our new law. Our faith in Christ is the law by which we operate. So we operate by faith in Christ. And so this law that was a dividing wall and it created hostility, has now been abolished. And why was that done so? Well, keep reading. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
So making peace. Once again, we're coming back to this idea of peace. He is our peace. He is making peace. He preached peace. So really trying to get at this idea of, of unity and peace um, in Christ. So he talks about creating this one new man. One new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ himself died to create one new man out of the two. And what he's doing here is he's creating his church. He's creating his people. He's creating his people to dwell in by his spirit. And this all kind of culminates in verse 18, where he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So when you think about the Trinity, and you think about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity is not a term that you'll find in the Bible. It's a term that was created by humankind, but it was a term that was very important. It was very important to a lot of people in the early church. And there was a lot of people who were ridiculed and ostracized and cast out of cities and, and brought down from governments and high places because of their view on the Trinity. But as you look at this verse, verse 18, I can really think of no better verse to try to describe the Trinity. And it's saying here, for through him, which is Christ, we both, both Gentile and Jew, now brought in together by one new man, have access in one spirit to the Father. So God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father. All together there in verse 18. Unity. Unity with God. Unity with man. Unity between Jew and Gentile. This is what God has done. This is what God has done for me, what God has done for you. And it's beautiful. God is creating his church. And so we'll keep moving to our last point where we see the church. So here is the church, okay? This is what God has done. Now this is what it means. So let's look at verses 19 through 22, God's church, the one church. So now Jew and Gentile have been brought together. So looking in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So verse 19 how can verse 19 be true? How is it that so then you are no longer strangers and aliens? Well, if you, were to, if you were to tie that into one verse and see the connection between verse 19 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So verse 19 is able to operate because of verse 13. And really the whole entire context in this entire thing of verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is a complete reversal of what we saw in verse 11 and 12. Having no hope, 
being strangers, not a part of the commonwealth, not a part of the family, didn't have God. So now we've just flipped it all on its head. So how, how does it happen that 19 and 22 can exist and 11 and 12 were so bad? Well, it's because of 13 through 18. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because of how God had mercy on us, his grace, the gift came down and did this. So the book ends, the bad news, the good news in the middle, and then now what do we do with this good news? 19 and 22 is a complete reversal of what Paul is talking about in 11 and 12. So let's keep going and trying to figure out what he's trying to say. And this is, this is really good news in, in thinking about, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow members of the household of God. This citizenship recognizes us being in the kingdom of God that Gentiles are now a part of. But not only that, Paul says, we are also now members of the household of God. We are now members of a family. And so when you think about a kingdom, and, and for example, we use the United States. And so we are all you know, members, we are all citizens of the United States of America. And, and that's something that we're proud of. We love the United States. We love to be in this country that affords a lot of freedoms. That's a great thing to carry. But then each of us, we, we all have a family. We have some kind of people that take care of us in life. We have parents, we have brothers and sisters, and that just kind of brings in this whole wide kingdom, but now we're brought into the family of God. And there is a certain difference being brought into the family of God. And the thing is, Gentiles were probably very aware of citizenship in a kingdom, but family, family of a spiritual God was something that they were not very familiar with. And so Paul is providing comfort. And he's saying that they're fellow citizens with the saints. And so um, they, are, they are just as much as Israel is that is Israel. This idea of flesh, which we talked about, the flesh in the hands, the circumcision wouldn't do it. But who did it? It was God. It was God dividing the dividing wall of hostility, killing it, in his flesh. So God's saying, you know, circumcision was at one time a sign that I used that was made in the flesh by hands, but now I'm going to show you what my flesh can do, what my flesh can do to not only abolish hostility, but to create peace. By creating peace between man, by, between Jew and Gentile, and creating ultimate peace with God with God. So verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what is the foundation? The apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus. Who are these apostles? Who are these prophets that, that Paul is talking about? So um, John Stott is, is pretty helpful here. He says that apostles and prophets have distinct teaching roles. Apostles refers to the special group appointed by Jesus, while prophets have certain revelation that is brought, but secondary to the apostles' teaching. And I think 1 Corinthians 12 is really helpful here. You don't have to turn there. But just to kind of provide this difference between apostle and prophet. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. He then goes on in verse, verse 14, 1, right after 1 Corinthians 13, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so he's making this distinction between apostolic authority and being a prophet. And, and there's a lot there. We don't have time to uncover that. Um, but just kind of understanding that the apostles and prophets, so Paul and the prophets of the New Testament, and probably including some of the prophets of the Old Testament, not so much their role or their authority, but their teachings. These teachings are very foundational to who we are. These teachings are how we live, how we have life by the Spirit. But we must understand that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. No foundation is possible except for the one that Christ Jesus has laid. And going back to 1 Corinthians, this is really kind of very, very helpful in distinguishing between apostles and prophets and the man Christ Jesus. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So Paul, with his apostolic authority, he's laying a foundation as an apostle. Prophets are also laying a foundation. So he says he is laying a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And without him, nothing happens. Nothing's built. There is no foundation. So let's finish here. God has created one new man in the place of two so that his spirit may dwell in his people. Verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God, understanding the bad news that Gentiles had, that were outside of the covenants of promise, separated from Christ, having no hope without God in the world, God, wanting to bless all people by Abraham, by blessing all nations, eventually would, would, be, would make good on his promise. He always does. And so God is looking to dwell in his new people. That's us. That's the church that his spirit now dwells inside of. And all of that is possible because of what we talked about by Christ killing the hostility in his flesh, something that the flesh made by hands, the circumcision could not do. But God in his flesh could accomplish that. And he has accomplished that. And we can rest in that. So 2 Corinthians 6.16 is really helpful here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Revelation 21.3 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's our hope. That is us right now. And so, this passage shows us our state as Gentiles before Christ. What was done by Jesus to make us right with man, but even so much more importantly with God, and what Jesus is now doing through his people, the one body, the church. So I hope you take comfort in that. I'm going to pray, and then we can talk about this at our tables.